I think you would have to agree with me when I say that we are self-centered people. And when I say we, I'm referring to all of us. And when I say all of us, I'm referring to all of us in the human race. It would be nice if we were able to say that only unbelievers or non-Christians are self-centered, but frankly, that just isn't the case. Even when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that doesn't automatically and magically remove our self-centeredness from us. Selfishness or self-centeredness doesn't leave us when we believe in Christ. In fact, sometimes it merely redirects itself. What I mean is our selfish desires can even shift to spiritual issues. We can be selfish about our desires and preferences for the kind of worship music we want to have. We can be selfish about our desires and preferences for how and when we celebrate the Lord's table. We can be selfish about our desires and preferences for who gets prayed for the most in church or who gets the most time up front or other things like that. We can be selfish about how we want the ministry to go our way and things to to go our way in the church. So the point is, our selfishness or self-centeredness doesn't automatically and magically leave us when we become Christians. I heard a true story about a family in another church who said to their pastor, quote, I don't want any more people to get saved and come to our church because then I would get less attention from you, pastor. Now, maybe you and I wouldn't be as blatant about our selfishness, but that doesn't mean it isn't there, even in the realm of spiritual things. Unfortunately, it is very easy for our selfishness to hide behind spiritual things because then we refuse to see it for what it really is. So how about you? Can you see your selfishness and and self-centeredness in life? Can, Can you see it in your preferences within the church? The first century disciples of Jesus couldn't easily see theirs. In fact, it is astonishing to note that almost every time, and you can catalog this, you can go back and search this out, almost every time Jesus said something about his impending death, the disciples ended up talking about their own greatness and arguing about it. Can you imagine that? How could they have been so blind and insensitive? I don't know. But neither do I know how we can be so blind and insensitive to our own selfishness and self-centeredness. How can a Christian justify getting mad at another Christian for not doing ministry exactly like he or she would like it to be done? How can we not see the contradiction in that kind of reaction? So we are no less blind and insensitive than the disciples were. It's just that we can see it in them, but we can't see it in ourselves. With that as background, turn with me please to Mark chapter 9 as we continue our trek through Mark's gospel. And we come this morning to Mark 9, verses 33 through 37, which will address 
the very issues I just mentioned in our introduction this morning. Mark chapter 9, please follow along as I read verses 33 through 37. Mark tells us, then he, the he, of course, a reference to Jesus, then he came to Capernaum. By the way, just let me remind you that verses 30 through 32, Jesus predicted his death. He just told them that he was going to die. Coming right off of that, Jesus came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Some of the most faint, famous paintings of our Lord Jesus Christ are those in which he is depicted interacting with little children. There is something especially touching and especially moving about such a scene. On the one hand, you have the sinless, perfect, almighty Son of God in all of His strength and in all of His tenderness. Added to that picture is the innocence of little children. It is quite a striking and complementary combination. It's not surprising that people are enamored with such a picture or such a painting. This text, not in painting form, but in word form, shows us Jesus interacting with a little child. As I'm sure you know, and it's an understatement to even say this, but Jesus was a master teacher. He had a solid grasp of Scripture, a unique insight into human nature, and an uncanny ability to draw illustrations from everyday life to drive home the point that he was wanting to make. That is exactly what we see in this passage before us. When the disciples argued about who was the greatest, he could perceive what was in their hearts, and he addressed the issue with an illustration that they would never forget. He used the example of a little child to emphasize the importance of humility and childlike faith. You see, childlikeness is often commended in Scripture. The Lord wants all of us to be childlike in the sense of having a childlike faith and trust. That is the way childlikeness is commended as exemplary. However, please hear this, there is an extremely important distinction to understand and keep in mind, which is childlikeness is commended in Scripture, childish immaturity is always seen in a negative light within the pages of Scripture. For example, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, Paul rebuked the believers in the church at Corinth because they were childish. 
specifically childish in their spiritual maturity. He said this to them, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. That's not a compliment. It's okay to be a babe in Christ when you are a new Christian. When you first come to faith in Christ, then it's wonderful to be able to say that you are a new babe in Christ. But if you stay in that condition, and you stay in that condition indefinitely or for a long period of time, then it ceases to be a good thing. In 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul said, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Sadly, too many people are just the opposite of that. They are very experienced in evil, very experienced in sin, but greatly lacking in spiritual perception and understanding. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are mature, that is, those who by reason of practice have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That's very similar to what Paul said to the Corinthians. So please understand that childishness is not a virtue. Childlikeness is a virtue. Childishness is not a virtue. Spiritual immaturity is not a virtue. When you first come to faith in Christ, then it's okay. In fact, it's even good. It's wonderful to be able to say you're a new babe in Christ. But if you stay in that condition indefinitely or for a long period of time, it ceases to be a good thing. Childishness in that case is not positive. Lack of maturity, lack of development, lack of discernment is not a virtue in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Test all things, hold fast what is good. In other words, have the discernment to be able to test what is truly good and what is not. You know as well as I do that little ones are not able to do that. You've seen toddlers pick up little rocks or buttons or other objects from the floor or from the ground and put them in their mouths. Even though the items don't taste good, they will do it again and again. They, they don't have the discernment to be able to test what is truly good and what is not. That's not commendable if you stay that way in life. And the same is true spiritually. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Test all things, hold fast what is good. It is a way of saying don't be childish in your understanding of life, your understanding of God's Word, and how to use it to discern the issues of life. Don't lack discernment. Scripture exhorts us in that way time and time again. So the point is that childlikeness is always held up in the Scripture as a good thing. But childishness is always seen as something undesirable. Childlikeness is what Jesus commends here in our text, not childishness. In fact, to, to reinforce this point, go back with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, for just a moment. And I want you to see how he rebuked childishness. Matthew, chapter 11. 
In verse 16, Jesus said, But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. Now what is Jesus saying here? Jesus was saying that his generation of people was like a group of children sitting in the marketplace finding fault with everything the other children did. You've seen children behave like this, so you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. You've seen a group of children playing a game, and you've seen some of those children in the mix object to everything the other children did. Nothing can satisfy them. That's the illustration Jesus is using here to demonstrate how the people of his day had responded to two things. John the Baptist's ministry and his ministry. He is saying it didn't matter, it doesn't matter which way we did it. John and I did things in, in quite a different way, but you complained about both of us. Sadly, there are people like this, even in the church. They complain all the time. They find fault all the time. They nitpick and criticize things that go on. And the tragic part is that many of those who are like this, are you ready? Think they are really spiritual. Many people who are like this think they are really spiritual. They have convinced themselves that the reason why they complain about things and find fault with things and nitpick and criticize is because they are more mature and more spiritual than other Christians. Jesus doesn't see it that way. He says in verse 18, for, let me explain this further. He used an illustration, now he explains it. For John came, John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. John's ministry, John's lifestyle, John's ministry and lifestyle were characterized by severity and asceticism. That would be the last part of verse 17, the reference to mourning and weeping. Jesus, on the other hand, lived basically a normal life as a Jew, especially when you contrast it to John's ascetic lifestyle. That is what is pictured by playing the flute and dancing. So here's the point. John and Jesus took two different but acceptable approaches to ministry. They both called people to repentance, and they both pointed to the people to the kingdom, but they went about it in different ways. John excluded himself from the mainstream of society, and he lived out in the wilderness. Jesus lived among the people and interacted with them. The result was this. John was accused by the people of the day of being demon-possessed, and Jesus was being accused of what we would call being a party animal. That's what Jesus is saying here. He is rebuking his generation for being childish, childish by looking for excuses to criticize the messengers and the work of God. You see, when people don't want to listen to the truth, when people in society don't want to listen to the truth, they will easily find an excuse for not listening to it. Don't ever forget that, beloved. When, when people don't want to listen to the truth, they will easily find an excuse for not listening to it. That's what the people of that day were doing with John and with Jesus. 
They criticized Jesus for not living a life of rigid abstinence from the ordinary activities of life. But when John had lived that kind of life, they criticized him for being weird, strange, unusual, and even demon-possessed. And then Jesus adds an interesting phrase at the end of this 19th verse. He says, but wisdom is justified by her children, or depending on your translation or version, by her works. In other words, though that generation was not happy with anything, the wisdom of the approach of both John and Jesus would be proved right by the results, namely that many people would be brought into the kingdom via repentance and faith. You see, that's where you have to land when faced with constant criticism. You have to say, Lord, our goal is to please you and not people. As long as you are pleased with what we are doing and as long as you are blessing our efforts, we'll, we will rest in that fact. That's what Jesus was saying here in response to the people of his day who were always finding a reason to complain against him, John the Baptist, People who complain and gripe and nitpick and criticize are behaving with childish immaturity, and Jesus rebuked it harshly on this occasion. So all that to say this, it is crucial that we keep in mind the distinction in Scripture between childlikeness and childishness. One is commendable, the other is detestable. So with all that as background, let's go return to our text in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 records Jesus commending childlikeness, not childishness. So here in Mark 9, Jesus is going to exalt childlike humility as being exemplary. So again, a reminder, verses 30 through 32, which we looked at last Lord's Day, Jesus foretells his death. He predicts his death. He unveils to the disciples what's coming. They didn't get it, but coming off of that, verse 32, we read this. Or verse 33, we read this. Then Jesus came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it that you discussed among yourselves on the road? Now, at this point, you need to see the disciples beginning to break out in a cold sweat. You see, they didn't know that Jesus knew what they were arguing about, and what they were arguing about, they shouldn't have been arguing about. And Jesus knew it. So he brings the issue to them. That's what Mark tells us in the next verse, verse 34. But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. In one sense, it's surprising that the disciples would have been arguing about something like this. We might assume that by this point in their development, by this point in their growth, they would have realized the wrongness of wanting to be seen as the best. And we might assume that they would have dealt in some measure with the struggle that can plague all of us, which is the sin of pride. But it's clear that they had not conquered this issue in their hearts. They had not conquered this issue in their lives. What a powerful reminder to us that we can easily be blind to things in our lives that we ought to be dealing with before the Lord. 
Beloved, let this be an attention getter for us. Let this be a warning to us. Let let this be a, a neon flashing sign that says, get it. Look at your own life. It's so easy to see things in other people's lives, but not so easy to see them in our own. And this is especially true with pride. Just think about how deceptive pride is and how difficult it is to notice it in our own lives. There's a sense in which it wants to lay low and remain unnoticed so that it can slowly release its deadly poison in our lives. For example, do you realize that it is possible to be proud of how well you are doing in the Christian life? It is possible to be proud of how much you are growing spiritually. It sounds like an oxymoron to say that, but it's true. And just expand it from there. It's possible to be proud of how much you pray. It's possible to be proud of how much theology you know. It's possible to be proud of how much you read your Bible. It's possible to be proud of your convictions. It's possible to be proud that you are a Sunday school teacher or a board member or an usher or a pastor or a missionary or a Bible study leader or whatever. Surely you've seen that. Sadly, I've interacted with several missionaries through the years who are obviously proud that they are missionaries and several pastors who are proud that they are pastors. As a result, they are fairly unopened to any input and are basically unteachable. They already know what is best, and they already know everything. And let me tell you something. It is a lot easier for me to see it in them than it is for me to see it in myself. My guess is that you are the same way. You can spot pride in others, but you can't see it in yourself nearly as well. It's so easy to miss the specific flavor or nuance of pride that resides in our hearts. In fact, it's possible to be proud of how humble you are. Think about that one. It's even possible to be proud of how humble you are. The point is this. The reason I'm saying all this is because we have no room to be hard on the disciples at this point. When we find out they were arguing over who was the greatest. We maybe wouldn't have done it that way. That maybe wouldn't have been our strain of pride. But don't you dare look at this passage and say, how ludicrous, how ridiculous that those disciples were like that. And don't hold up a mirror. Notice, Jesus didn't sigh like, and blast them for their dispute. He didn't unload on them. No, instead... He took the opportunity to remind them of what he had already taught them so many times before. Verse 35, And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Notice that Jesus sat down. That was the posture of a rabbi who was about to teach. It's it's actually the exact opposite of in our culture. Usually when people teach, whether it's in a university setting or wherever, if people are going to lecture or give a speech, they stand up. In that culture, a rabbi would sit down. So this would have signaled the disciples that Jesus was about to say something. He was about to teach them something very important. This would have gotten their attention. Jesus sat down. And what was it that Jesus wanted to say? Jesus 
directed their ambition toward servanthood. He basically said, men, if you want to stand out, men, if you want to excel, if you want to be great, do so as a humble servant. Let me tell you, that was a radical statement. This was totally contrary to their culture, just as it is totally contrary to our culture. True greatness, as measured by our Lord, is found in humility. It's found in servanthood. It's not in power. It's not in prominence. It's not in authority. Do you realize how much we have to fight those thoughts from taking root in our hearts? Beloved, our culture isn't going to reinforce the right way of thinking for us. You know that. Our culture is not going to help us out here. We have to take our cues from our Lord, not our culture. He is our leader. He is our teacher. He is our master. He is our Lord. He is our example. And here he says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. There's no glory in that. There's no honor in that. There's no exaltation in that except from the Lord. So where do you want to get your recognition? That's a basic question, fundamental question. Where do you want to get your recognition? Do you want to get it from the world or do you want to get it from the Lord? His way is diametrically opposed to the world's value system and the world's way of thinking. He has outlined the course. He has outlined the path for us, and he illustrates it further. He drives home this point further in a way way that the disciples would never forget. Verse 36, Mark tells us, Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them. Now pause right there for just a moment. As you know, it was not uncommon for Jesus to use children or a little child as an example. And that's what he does on this occasion. Jesus called a little child to his side, or maybe he sat the child on his lap. We don't know specifically because the text simply says Jesus took the child in his arms. But we know that he pointed to this child as an object lesson to drive home his point. By the way, the Greek word used here indicates a very little child perhaps a toddler. Why would Jesus use a child? Well, for one reason, for one thing, it was totally counter their way of thinking. Now, the first century, the people of the first century didn't despise children, but they probably just in general probably didn't have as much, uh, what, appreciation, maybe even as our culture does. I mean, children were seen as, you know, know, a person that you would love and you need to bring them up, etc. But, you, you know, They can't really do much in life, accomplish much in life, so they weren't really held in very much high esteem in the first century. So you need to understand that when Jesus takes this child, it's like, you know, like the other occasions when some some parents brought their children to Jesus and the disciples were like, don't bother him, you know, with the kids. Just keep, you know, just keep the kids away. He's got too many important things to do. So why would Jesus do this? Because a child is the perfect illustration of several characteristics that we ought to have in our lives. For example, little children, 
are often completely trusting. That's the way we ought to be in relation to God. Little children are often humble, especially in comparison to older children and adults, many of whom believe they are omnicompetent. As an illustration of this fact, it's not uncommon to hear little children say, I can't do that. Even if you have the confidence they would be able to do it, whatever it is. They think, oh, I, can't, I can't do that. So little children are often completely trusting, often humble. Here's another one. Little children are in some ways helpless and dependent on others to take care of them. In the same way, there's a sense in which we are helpless and dependent on our Heavenly Father, and the sooner we recognize it, the better off we are. I'll mention one more parallel. Little children don't have much strength. They are weak, especially compared to young people and adults. They don't have the mental or physical ability to be the movers and shakers of society. They really can't be the bigwigs, the stars, the prominent people. In the same way, God doesn't look for the elite of society to be the ones he calls into his family. 1 Corinthians one twenty six says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. That verse doesn't say not any. God does call people into his family who are especially gifted mentally or physically or intellectually or financially or in other ways if they are willing to humble themselves before him. So God doesn't automatically exclude the upper echelon of society, but he does if they refuse to become as little children. He does exclude them. God does exclude them if they refuse to realize that their God-given extraordinary abilities don't gain them any special place with him. That's why Jesus often used a little child as an illustration. Complete trust, humility, helplessness, a lack of exceptional ability are often seen in little children, and that is why Jesus called this little child into their midst to illustrate his point. And then he adds this, verse 37, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Let me tell you, that's not what the disciples wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear Jesus talk about receiving children. They wanted to do great things in life. They wanted to be the greatest. That's what they were arguing about. That's what they were disputing. They wanted to interact with the movers and shakers of society and not children whom they considered to be relatively insignificant. Not, not that you would be unloving, but just that they're not very significant. The disciples wanted to do things that were big. They wanted to do things that were significant. So Jesus tells them here that receiving a child in his name is significant. It is so significant that Jesus equates it with receiving him and receiving the Father. The person who receives a little child because of Christ 
In other words, the person who receives a little child out of motivation, out of his motivation is his love for Christ, is in essence receiving Jesus himself. And by the way, this shows, this statement shows the graciousness of our Lord. It shows his heart. He looks, you could say this, that the Lord looks for reasons to reward his people. In Matthew 10, 42, he said this, And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. The Lord looks for reasons to reward his people. And one of the things he rewards most is humility. That is why Scripture repeatedly says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, now, as I quote this verse, remember who wrote it? Peter. Peter, the guy that was in on this argument of who's the greatest. But later he would write this in 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Peter evidently got the lesson. He got it. He was one of the guys arguing on this, on this occasion over who was the greatest. Who knows? Wouldn't be surprising if he even started the argument. He was one of the three taken by the Lord up on the Mount of Transfiguration in the early verses of this ninth chapter. And he may have assumed that that meant, hey, he's the greatest, or at least one of the three best, you know. Look, it's only me, James, and John, the three of us. So it's refreshing, very refreshing to hear him write later in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Jesus took this occasion to teach his men humility and it seems they eventually got it. Did we, have we gotten it? Did we get it? This morning, did we get the lesson? Did we really hear it? Jesus used a little child to teach this lesson because as he said in Matthew 10, 3, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. So how about you? Have you humbled yourself as a little child and been converted? Jesus said, assuredly. Whenever he used that word, he was trying to emphasize, assuredly, you, you better hear this, you better get this. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you humbled yourself as a child and been converted? If not, Jesus said, you won't be there. Absolutely will not be there. Let's bow together as we close our time in the Word. And as you bow your head and close your eyes, please take just a couple minutes to reflect on, think about, see in your mind's eye this occasion, this setting where Jesus, along the road, announces his impending death, and then the disciples end up arguing over who's the greatest. And then Jesus calls them on that. He not only calls them on that, he then goes on 
to reinforce what should have been their thinking. And he talked about being childlike. Childlike in humility. Beloved, this is something, obviously, if the disciples struggle with it, we, we dare not assume we're better than, than they were, or somehow more advanced spiritually. This is the lesson for us, every one of us in this room. It's a lesson for us. And if you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, without a relationship with God the Father, then hear the words of Jesus. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Humble yourself today. As a child, before God, humble yourself and call out to God, saying, God, I, I am undeserving. I am a sinner. I, I recognize that. Thank you for the death of Jesus on the cross for my sin. I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to humble myself before you. I want to let go of anything that's holding me back. However you want to say it, whatever's in your heart, but make sure you humble yourself before the Lord and call out to Him. And child of God, if you have, if you have called out to the Lord and you know you belong to Him, don't assume. Please don't assume. That means you've conquered the beast of pride because it's resident in all of us. It comes out in so many ways. Ask the Lord to show it to you. Ask the Lord to, to bring it to light. Ask the Lord for the, the resolve to address it, to deal with it in, in life, just as the disciples needed to deal with it in their lives. Father, as we reflect back on this story Again, we are in awe. We are amazed at the Lord Jesus and how, how he could minister, how he could teach, how he dealt with things. It, it would have been so easy for him, especially coming off of the announcement about his death and then the disciples to end up arguing over who would be the greatest. It, it would have been so easy for him to just blast them, just unload on them and to, to uh condemn them for their lack of sensitivity and their lack of hearing what he said and, and any, any number of things along those lines. And yet he didn't. He simply sat down, called them to himself, and once again reinforced this important lesson that they needed to learn and that we need to learn. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then he reinforced that with the illustration of a little child. Father, thank you that it does appear that the disciples eventually got it, and we pray we would get it, that we would really come to grips with it in our own lives. Oh, it's so easy for us to miss it. It's so easy for us to, to be blind to it in our lives. Open our eyes. Make us aware. For your sake, because we want to represent you well. And then in closing, Father, we pray for anyone here among us today, anyone hearing these words who really can't even call you, Father, because they have never humbled themselves before you as a little child. They have never called out to you, cried out to you in repentance to ask for forgiveness and to receive salvation. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, in that man's life, woman's life, young person, whoever it is, to draw him or her.
to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, enable us to remember this lesson well of the importance of childlikeness, but not childishness. Deliver us from childishness. And may we be childlike in the way we relate to you and to one another. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.